Matthew chapter 5. Matthew 5, we're looking this morning at verses 38 through 42. We are uh, studying through Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, the Sermon on the Mount, this block of uh, teaching from our Lord Jesus. This current uh, passage uh, is unfolding what Jesus meant when he said that he had not come to abolish the law of the prophets, but to fulfill them, uh, that he has no, in no way has come to undo the law or replace the law, but to fulfill it. And then in this, these various uh, uh, items, commands from the Old Testament that he addresses, he is showing how they apply and how they should apply. And so let's look now at Matthew chapter 5, verse 38. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for this portion of it. And Lord, as we come to it, we come not merely to the religious reflections of men, but we come to the very word of God. And as you reveal your will, your truth, your grace to us in it, we pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. For we ask it in Jesus' name. As we've looked at these various items that Jesus has addressed, the, the Old Testament commandments, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery. As he goes through and explains the Old Testament teaching on uh, divorce, as we saw last week on uh, the law requiring those who swear to swear in truth, uh, we're confronted with our own fallen human nature because we have to understand the context in which Jesus was addressing the application of these commandments. He did so in a case where men, religious teachers, really who should have known better, and yet being fallen sinners as we all are themselves, uh, could be deceived, uh, were teaching the law in a way that in some cases allowed the very thing that the law prohibited. And that's our human nature. It's to find out how much we can get away with. What's the least we have to do to be okay? We learn this as children. Our parents say, clean your room. Well, we want to know how much. You know, what, what do I have to put away and what can I leave out? Uh, we, we become masters of finding the exception, the loophole, uh, the extraordinary case that would allow us to get away with what we want to do. And that's exactly what, it, what has happened here with God's law. Uh, men take it. They say, what's the minimum I have to do? How can I understand this in a way that will allow me to get around it? Another tragic application is where God has made concessions. Man has interpreted that as a commandment. And particularly we saw that in Deuteronomy 24, 
where God makes provision to contain and regulate divorce while acknowledging uh, the realities of our human fallenness, our sinful hearts, and how they can get in the way. And yet uh, that was later taken to be a command. It really, the divorce wasn't even the issue. It was the procedure. As long as you gave the, the right certificate, that was what was in question. It almost became the bureaucrat's mindset. It wasn't what was done or not done. It's how you did it, whether you did it and followed the right procedure. Well, as we come here again, Jesus uh, starts out with this now familiar formula. You have heard that it was said. And, and then he quotes here. And this is the first thing we want to look at here, by the way, is the Old Testament teaching here. Similar uh, pattern. I kind of feel like I'm going through the same outline. But Jesus follows pretty much the same pattern in each of these. And we're looking at it, the Old Testament teaching that's here. And then Jesus' uh, explanation of it. And then he actually gives some illustrations of what he's talking about here. So first of all, the Old Testament teaching that Jesus refers to is in verse 38. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Now, this is sometimes this principle sometimes referred to as the lex talionis, the law of retaliation. Uh, And it's a principle that uh, in terms of legal justice applies down to the present day. And that's what Jesus is quoting here from the Old Testament. We read where it occurs in Leviticus chapter 24, read that in our Old Testament lesson. Uh, It also occurs in Exodus chapter 21, right after the giving of the Ten Commandments in chapter 20. It also occurs again in Deuteronomy chapter 19, this principle, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, and it's expanded, but that's the shorthand way of referring to it. Now, that's the law that was given. Several things we need to know about that law as we think about it, and Jesus quotes it here. In the first place, the law was given for judges to use in handing down sentences in various cases that come before them. And the point of the principle was, as we would put it today, the punishment should fit the crime. There should be proportionality. Now, we read a case earlier, interestingly, and I wanted to read through it, of a man who blasphemed the name of God and was put to death. And we might say today, well, that's an extreme punishment for such a crime, but that only goes to show how little we actually treasure and value the holy name of our God. But in that context, God said that was a capital crime. That was a crime warranting the death penalty. Well, there were others, murder being the classic case, not because we devalue life by the death penalty, but we uphold the value of life in the death penalty. The life is so valuable that one who takes it uh, has to pay with the forfeiture of his own life in robbing someone through murder of his life. So it was meant to apply in terms of justice. It's also true, as, as gruesome in some ways as it may seem, that this was not... Uh, actually applied literally. Usually what was done was that financial uh, penalties or some other damages would be assessed to make things right. For example, in the death of an animal, uh, the person guilty might be required to replace the animal, uh, but a proportional punishment for the crime. However, What is most certain and what Jesus teaches here is that this was never meant to apply in terms of interpersonal relationship. In other words, this was not a guide for 
personal retaliation or personal revenge in the case of where one person has wronged another. Um, in fact, Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, which reference I'm sure doesn't necessarily ring a bell, although you will see it's familiar. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. When Jesus was asked, what are the two great commandments? You'll remember he said, the first is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. The second is to love your neighbor as yourself. Well, he was quoting Leviticus 19, verse 18. It's the second greatest commandment. But for our, our purposes here, what we're interested in is, is what comes before that. You shall not take revenge or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Now, by Jesus' time, and certainly well before, this, this law was taken, and especially the scribes and Pharisees uh, had taken it, and essentially stood it on its head, and, and applied it in interpersonal relationships, and actually understood it to mean uh, that at least permission was given for personal vengeance, if not, that you were commanded to seek out personal vengeance. At least permission given, if not actually commanded, to seek out personal revenge. And so what you come out with uh, in such a case is the Capulets and the Montagues. You you come out with the feuding families. You come out with the escalation, uh, which is nothing new. You go all the way back in the early chapters of uh, of Genesis and Lamech and his you know his his vows of vengeance and and bloodthirst. Well, that's the kind of thing that this law was meant to prohibit, and they took it and used it to say, well, you know, we'll get revenge, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. You know, they they even escalating. They hit us once, we'll hit them twice. That kind of kind of thing. And so that's the situation that Jesus is addressing. He's not taking exception to the principle, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, which merely mandated that the punishment should fit the crime. What he was addressing in the context in which he gave this teaching was uh, people who had taken this to themselves and said, see, God requires, of, or at least allows me, or even requires of me, personal revenge and retaliation. Now, that just goes to show our sinful fallen nature, because vengeance, retaliation, uh, not, not, not a desire for justice, but a desire for revenge is the expression of our fallen condition. A desire for justice is not, but a desire for personal revenge is. And that's what the Pharisees had made this. So let's look at what Jesus is saying here. Verse 39, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. Now, in Greek, it's clear that he's not saying do not resist evil. He's, he's, he was referring to a person, to the one who is evil, or to the evil one, which you might even think of Satan himself, but I think what Jesus is referring to isn't the devil so much as he is, just an evil person, someone who is malicious, someone who is out to do you wrong. Do not resist the one who is evil. Now that's the principle. And he goes on to list four examples, which we'll look at in just a moment. But let's stop there. Jesus' teaching here has been taken to 
uh, such links uh, throughout history that I think surely must go beyond or contrary even to what Jesus had in mind. Tolstoy uh, was one who took Jesus' words here in such a way that didn't see how even governments could, uh, could, could punish evildoers. Uh, Gandhi was another who took Jesus' teaching and teaching like it uh, to develop a whole concept of pacifism and even say that government ultimately was not, should not be necessary uh, and so forth. Well, before we talk about what this might mean or not mean, I think it's helpful to review some rules of interpretation. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was a preacher in Wales and London, he himself was Welsh, uh, through in the 20th century, um, in his commentary, I think lays down some good rules that apply here, but also apply to interpreting the Sermon on the Mount and really all of Scripture as a whole. But these are some rules he gives that I think will help us and safeguard us as we talk about what it means not to resist the one who is evil. First of all, he says, we must never regard the Sermon on the Mount as a code of ethics or set of rules to cover our conduct in detail. Rather, it emphasizes the spirit of the law. And that's what Jesus is doing here. He's basically, again, cleaning off the the barnacle-encrusted law that had been twisted, that had been uh, warped over the centuries and brushed it off, cleaned it up, and said, this is what I meant. This is what I had in mind. Second rule. These teachings are not to be applied mechanically or as a rule of thumb. And the danger here is that we just make this a new law. We just take what Jesus says and mechanically and literally apply it in this case, in this situation. And we want to be careful about doing that. Three, and this is important when we come to this verse. If our interpretation ever makes the teaching appear to be ridiculous or leads us to a ridiculous position, it is plainly a wrong interpretation. Whatever whatever else Jesus was doing here, he was not being ridiculous. Fourth, if our interpretation makes the teaching appear to be impossible, it is also wrong. Now, I would say at some level, all of God's law is impossible to us. I mean, there's no way that we are going to fulfill it outwardly and inwardly in such a way as to earn full acceptance with God. We're sinners, we can't, and we won't do that. What Lloyd-Jones means here when he says impossible is that it's something we simply can't attain to at all. Uh, and in God's commands, we can obey to, to a, in, a, in a measure, to a degree. Not perfectly, but perceptibly and truly. The fifth principle of interpretation, he says, if our interpretation contradicts the plain and obvious teaching of Scripture at another point, again, it is obvious our interpretation has gone astray. Uh, this is simply the, the rule of the analogy of Scripture, that you always interpret the harder to, harder to understand passage in light of the easier to understand Passage, and you never interpret a passage so that it contradicts another portion of Scripture. Uh, the plainer passages uh, have to give light and, and guidance as we interpret the more difficult passages. And I think we would acknowledge that this is a difficult passage. It's very easy, I think, to come to a point where we're being ridiculous. I think it's easy to come to a point where we are perhaps in contradiction with other teaching of scripture here if we're not careful. So let's look at what, first of all, some of the things Jesus may not mean, I think does not mean when he's teaching what he says here. Do not resist the one who is evil. Well, in the first place, he's not saying that the government cannot uh, punish the evildoer. If you interpret it that way, if you're saying this applies to governments and they can't resist the one who does evil, 
You're saying a government can't uh, defend itself in the face of of an external attack or invasion. You're saying that a government cannot resist the criminal element within its own society by, uh, by hunting them down, by catching them, incarcerating them, punishing them in whatever way. Well, we have only to look at other passages of Scripture to know that's not the case. Romans 13 being a good case in point, where Paul says that the sword is given to the government. Government is the minister of God to do good, to reward those who do good, to punish the evildoer. Does not bear the sword in vain. Um, So obviously, when Jesus says this, he's not saying that the government, the state, doesn't have the right to execute justice. Jesus also is not saying here that you or I do not have the right to defend ourselves or protect ourselves from an attack or to defend and protect our families or our children. Jesus isn't saying that if someone wants to do me harm or wants to do my children harm, that I simply have to stand back and allow that to happen. Uh, I think that's beginning to border on the ridiculous. In fact, in, uh, when Jesus was teaching about his own return, he wasn't addressing this, but by implication, I think it's there, that he said that the, 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 the Son of Man will return as a thief in the night. You know, if the homeowner had known when the thief was coming, he would be ready. Uh, the point being, the homeowner is prepared to defend and protect his home and resist the, the thief, the evildoer. Uh, and I think that's certainly implied there, and Jesus understood that. So Jesus isn't saying that you and I can't defend ourselves, can't defend our homes, our families, our loved ones. Uh, so those are some ways, even on a personal level, I think that Jesus is not saying that we cannot defend ourselves. What does Jesus mean here? To pick up language from our New Testament reading, I think Jesus is saying basically this. You and I must be willing in certain circumstances, in certain cases, for the sake of the kingdom, to be wronged, to be put upon, to be used, to be taken advantage of for the sake of the kingdom. Now, to go back to Lloyd-Jones' rule, does that mean in every case we must be? I don't think so. But I think what Jesus is saying here is that we must be willing to be wrong. Now, I pick up that language from 1 Corinthians 6. Paul was talking about, in that passage, believers taking each other to court, suing each other. Well, Paul says the very fact that you have lawsuits among you means that you've suffered a a big defeat already. The very fact that you, you can't work things out, the very fact that you can't have other Christians mediate this, this situation means you've already lost something significant and, and big already. But then he says, why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded for the sake of the kingdom, for the sake of the witness of the kingdom before the world? In other words, are you so hung up on your rights? Are you so obsessed with protecting yourself and what you own and your pride that you can't endure an injustice for the sake of Christ knowing that on the last day God is going to make everything right. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? I think, if I could put it that way, that that is what Jesus has in mind here. Remember, he's talking about interpersonal relationships. He's talking about who we are. He's talking about how, as Christians, we are to uh, relate to the world. This is not a law for everybody. This is not a principle for everybody. This does not apply to the non-Christian. This applies to Christians. This applies to those who have taken up the cross and are following Jesus. 
Now, I think it's helpful too not only to pick up language from Paul, but an illustration from Jesus. Um, in First Peter chapter two, passage I think you're probably familiar with. First uh, Peter chapter two, uh, verse twenty-one. Peter writes, "For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you." leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. So if we pick up the language from Paul, why not rather be wrong? If we pick up the example from Jesus, who though he certainly could have retaliated, certainly could have struck down those who were treating him badly. Uh, He did not for our sake. He had to go to the cross. He had to fulfill the the purpose, the plan for which he came. Otherwise, you and I would still be in our sins. You and I would still be bound for hell and lost. But he endured that. He did not retaliate. He entrusted himself to his Father who judges all things justly. And so that's the explanation that Jesus gives. Now, let's look at some of the illustrations that he brings up here. And there are four of them. And before we look at them, you need to remember that Jesus isn't saying, in these four cases, this is how it has to play out. He is giving examples of how the principle might be demonstrated, how it might play out in different circumstances in life. Now, you see... The pharisaical mindset could take, it, take a different circumstance outside these four and say, well, see, it doesn't apply out here because Jesus didn't mention those in the four examples that he gave. But see, that's falling into the loophole thinking. That's falling into the pharisaical, sinful way of thinking. That's not just the Pharisees. We're all prone to that. And so we want to look at these as just what they are, examples, not a law given, but examples of how this principle might apply. Uh, Verse 39, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. The idea here is perhaps that of an insult, you know, the, the backhanded slap on, on the cheek, which in that culture, as in most, you know, it's, it's painful at best and, and a personal insult. Uh, at worst, your honor is besmirched. You must have justice, right? You throw down the gauntlet. We have to go out back, back and have a duel. Well, What is Jesus saying here? Jesus isn't saying that you need to endure physical pain if someone attacks you. Basically, the idea here is someone has has offended your honor. What are you going to do? Are you going to insist on justice in a duel? Or are you willing, because you are really at heart so indifferent to your honor and reputation that you're willing just to turn the other cheek, just to, to, to be wronged, to endure that insult? For the sake of Christ. That's what Jesus is saying here. Another example. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. Fine. You want my tunic? You can have my cloak too. You can use it. You can have it. We're not so hung up and clinging to our possessions that we're not willing to let go of them. In fact, we're willing to do them one better. Verse 41. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. The picture here was used, the verb that he uses is that of being conscripted or, or brought up, uh, brought in to, uh, to do a job. Like, uh, for example, Simon of Cyrene was, was 
uh, grabbed by Roman soldiers to help Jesus carry his cross. And Jesus is saying there's a situation like this. Well, don't just do the minimum. We want you for a mile. Give him two miles. Go beyond even what he has required of you. Verse 42, give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Uh, again, an indifference to possessions, to wealth, that we, and, and a desire for generosity of being willing to provide and to give. You see, we can do this because in Christ we've become indifferent to sin against us, and we've become indifferent to our own self-esteem and our own pride. Our security, our well-being is in Christ. No one can take that away, and I have nothing that I have to protect I'm not so insecure that I have to defend my stuff, my pride, my reputation, my wealth. But I can give of myself. Now, again, Jesus isn't talking about a general rule for for society as a whole. Jesus isn't laying an absolute law that applies in every way at all times. Jesus is saying that we are humble enough, we are poor enough in spirit and secure enough in Christ that we are willing to allow ourselves to be wronged in a case that might further the gospel. This isn't weakness. This isn't wimpiness. This is strength. I mean, who could look at Jesus enduring what he endured and just say that's just weakness? Jesus, with a word, could have laid waste everyone around him. Just flattened them. But he didn't. He endured all of that. And that was strength. That was not weakness. And so it is with us. If we're willing to endure uh, evil, being done wrong, for the sake of the kingdom, for the sake of our witness, then in God's grace we can do that. We don't have to insist on our rights because one day God is going to insist on our rights. And he's going to make it all right. But, you know, there's great power in being able to endure. There's great witness in being, able, in being willing and able to endure wrong. And while there may be those who only continue to take advantage of it, there may be those whom God's spirit touches and they say, wait a minute. This is weird. This is strange. This is not normal. Because of your witness, because of your unwillingness to strike back, because of your unwillingness to take revenge, there actually is great power in that kind of a witness. Again, on the personal level, as we interact with one another. Now, again, we want to be careful not to apply this as a new law. Jesus is giving us here the spirit of the law. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth does not require you and does not even give you permission to go out and seek vengeance, does not give you permission to go out and retaliate. Rather, Jesus is saying, I'm looking for followers who will take up their cross and bear injustice and bear insult and bear injury for the sake of the kingdom. Now, we want to be careful because I think what Jesus says here needs some qualification to be understood in its context. On the other hand, we want to be careful we don't so qualify what Jesus is saying here that we just erase the the radical nature of what Jesus is teaching here. This cuts across the grain of our sinful nature, which wants vengeance, which wants revenge, not because someone's violated justice, but because they've hurt me. They've done me wrong, and I want vengeance. That's who we are naturally. This cuts across the grain of this. This is radical. This is supernatural. But as Christians, this is what Jesus is calling us to. We don't want to lose sight of the radical, otherworldly nature of this. Uh, It's not a mandate for national or even personal pacifism. But at the same time, we need to recognize 
that there is great power in the personal level in passive non-retaliation. Our hope is that the one who wrongs us would be convicted of his sin. But even if not, even if sometimes for the sake of Christ and his kingdom, we have to suffer wrong, we do so without seeking revenge, without seeking vengeance. Sometimes we must be willing to forego justice, at least until God himself delivers it. Now, in the next passage, Jesus goes on to to present it not so much passively, how we respond to those who do us wrong, but actively and how we are to respond to those who do us wrong. So, Lord willing, we'll look at that next week and look at the passage in Romans 12 a little more carefully. But for now, we're able to respond to others in love and in grace, not clinging to our honor, uh, to our possessions, remembering that whatever happens, the Lord God says, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, this is not easy, and it's not always easy to know how this would apply and how this should be fulfilled in the, 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 the almost uh, innumerable uh, occasions that would come up in our lives. We thank you for the four examples that you've given to us here and help us, Lord, to see how those would apply and how we can live that out in our relationships with our family and classmates and coworkers and neighbors Uh, But, Lord Jesus, we are in awe of how you were willing to humble yourself and to endure what you endured. And how those who have followed you, Lord, we think of Stephen and others who endured great wrong uh, and yet responded only with grace. And, Father, we pray that that would be true of us. We pray that we would not so be bound to our own honor, so fearful of injury, so self-protective of our interests that that we could not also show our willingness to endure wrong for the sake of the kingdom. And, Lord, we pray that not because we would enjoy it, but we pray it that we might bear a faithful witness, that you have changed us, that you are at work in us, and that we, while living here on earth, are actually citizens of a new age, of a new kingdom, citizens of heaven, that our lives would shine with that transformation that you've brought about in us. Lord, give us grace to love you. Give us grace to love others as we love ourselves, for we pray it in Jesus' name.